Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. You are listening to Chats in Linguistic Diversity, brought to you by Macquarie University and the Language on the Move Network, hosted by Ingrid Piller. My guest today is Dr. Pierce Kelly, an anthropologist from literature researcher at the University of New England in Armidale. Pierce's PhD is from the Australian National University in Canberra on its Iron. Iskayan is a utopian language and script that was created over 100 years ago by a radical prophet in the southern Philippines. Now, that sounds super intriguing, but um, she's also an expert on something even more intriguing, and that's Aboriginal message sticks, and that's what we'll be talking about today. Pierce is the creator and editor of the Australian Message database, a digital repository of more than 1,100 message sticks and their associated metadata. And um, he's the author of a fascinating new article that has just come out in the Journal of Material Culture. That article is called Australian Message Sticks, Old Questions, New Directions. Welcome, Pierre. Thank you. Pierce, how did you get interested in message sticks? Well, um, I heard somebody in Europe give a talk on the undeciphered linear A script of Crete, and in the talk she mentioned Australian message sticks as a kind of comparative aside, and I thought to myself, well, why don't I know something about this? And this was shortly before I was about to start a postdoc at the Max Planck Institute in Vienna in Germany, in a lab that was looking at the evolution of graphic codes of all kinds. And it occurred to me that I was the only Australian at the Institute at that time, and I should bring something Australian to the topic. So when I was back in Canberra, I contacted the National Museum of Australia that has some terrific message sticks. Um, the museum was very helpful, and they agreed to photograph the 50 or so message sticks in their collection at no cost. Uh, and this became the basis for the database that you mentioned. And I also got some help from IATSIS. Um, and then back in Germany, I began very slowly developing the database by mostly by visiting European museums. And I was surprised at just how many message sticks are in those museums, particularly in Germany and the UK. And I didn't start out with any big questions, just a kind of curiosity to learn a bit more than I did. And it was never really my main project when I was at the Max Planck Institute. I was mostly working on writing systems and the question of how communities that are traditionally non-literate, um, how they appropriate or reinvent writing systems for their own purposes. And now I'm still interested in that, but I've kind of put that question on pause for a while, and I'm focusing more deliberately on message sticks. Can you a message stick? What actually is it? Um, it's, it's a hard question because a message stick can look like 
anything. Um, but a very typical shape, if you like, is um, if you can imagine a piece of um, polished wood that's about 20 centimetres long, maybe. Uh, it's tapered at one end, and sometimes it's tapered at both ends. It can be more or less flattened, like, like a ruler, or it can be cigar-shaped, and then it has uh, markings along its surfaces. So the most common markings are simple notches and lines, and you also get dots or stippling, but there can also be quite elaborate and iconic pictures, and some of them are so fine uh, and small that they're only visible if you look very closely in bright light, and that's been my struggle in a museum setting where, where you, it's not always possible to get a bright light. So that's the typical shape, a, a tapered polished stick that's marked with signs. But then there's quite a diversity across Australia. So there's a method stick um, from Mornington Island uh, in the National Museum uh, of Australia that's a metre and a half long, uh, which is huge. It's painted and it has emu feathers affixed to one end. Uh, and a beautiful object. And then in the database, the smallest one uh, is one that I came across in the Pimp Rivers Museum, and it's just over five centimetres long. Um, it's tiny, it's wrapped up in, in um, possum fur twine, and it's from the Wanyuwakal people of um, western New South Wales. Um, so one of the things I found that complicates the question even further of what a, a message stick is supposed to look like is the fact that in a tight spot, um, Aboriginal people could use other things as message sticks. So there's a wonderful example of a spear thrower from Victoria that was repurposed as a message stick. And sadly, it's been lost in a fire. Well, and so now that we know what they look like or what a typical message stick looks like, looks like. What did Aboriginal people do with it? What, how was it used? What's the purpose? And maybe you can break the graph for us in how were these message sticks used in pre-colonial times? How were they used in the late 19th, early 20th century? And how are they used today? Or are they still used today? Well, um, just quickly answering the last question first, they are still used today in a, in a in a different way that they used before. They're still used, they're certainly used today. Um, but the traditional way um, that message sticks were used in pre-colonial times follow the kind of set routine that, in my understanding, is reasonably consistent across Australia. And it goes something like this. So someone wants to send a message to another person or, or to another community that lives outside of their own territorial jurisdiction, um, they appoint a messenger, who is usually a man, uh, and then they go off and harvest a small piece of wood, which they then begin carving in the presence of this appointed messenger. And while they're carving it, they explain the content of the intended message and the meaning of individual signs carved on it. For example, it might be, you know, it's time to hunt kangaroos, they're plentiful, um, we need to coordinate people for the hunt. And so the the person who's a defender is making the stick and explaining that's the message. And then the messenger takes the message stick and sets off towards the camp of the intended recipient or recipients. And what's important at this stage is that his identity and his purpose as a messenger is made really clear. So the message stick is displayed publicly. It can be hung on the end of a spear or inside a net bag. Uh, it can be tucked in a waist girdle or a headband. There are examples of message sticks, really small ones, that are in fact uh, have been stuck through the nose or through the septum. Um, 
But the point is that everyone must be able to see it, and the messenger can kind of signal his role through things like body paint as well. Um, and everyone needs to know that uh, he has a message because there's a strong protocol of, uh, as it were, not shooting the messenger or not at least not spearing the messenger because once he passes into country over which he doesn't have traditional rights of access, um, he would otherwise be placed in, in danger of being killed uh, as a trespasser on the spot. Um, so he crosses over a political boundary without harm uh, and approaches the camp of the recipient and usually sits some distance away so everyone can see him uh, and that he means no harm uh, and that he has this kind of ambassadorial mission, if you like. And then eventually he'll perhaps be given food and invited to approach the camp. And at this point, he delivers the message to the recipient um, along with a verbal explanation of what it means as it was conveyed to him by the original sender. This, again, is all still done very publicly. Um, the recipient might then carve a message stick as a response or simply give a verbal reply, which the messenger then takes back home. So that's the kind of classical routine with variants around the place. So some groups did all of that, but without a message stick at all. Uh, and for them, the messenger... Um, so, for example, the Diary people of uh, South Australia didn't use message sticks, um, but they still did that routine and the messengers interestingly for the dairy were women always women um, most of the elsewhere in Australia it's almost always men um, then this routine uh, of the messenger the defender of the messenger the recipient it began to change with the expansion of the colonies so Aboriginal people began to uh, take advantage of different forms of transport like horses carriages steamers and so on the motifs that appeared on message sticks were also influenced by new signs introduced by settlers. Um, there's an example of a message stick with a representation of police stripes and insignias, for example. Um, there's one I saw at the Pitt Rivers Museum um, that has playing card suits uh, inscribed on it, and this one was in fact once owned by uh, Badbury Patterson, which is an interesting detail. Um, there's a few from the Kimberley region that have intriguing representations of what look like letters of the Roman alphabet. Um, and it's also in this time that there are um, cases of non-Indigenous people, uh, settlers, um, learning how to make message sticks and then using them to communicate with Indigenous communities. So it becomes this kind of hybrid, um, hybrid technology. Uh, and then as the, you know, as the 19th century wears on, it, it seems more common also for women to be sending message sticks or to be messengers themselves, even in places where women traditionally didn't do that. So the system is getting shaken up by the expanding colonies and it's finding ways to adapt. Um, by the early 20th century, message sticks are no longer widely used in that traditional routine that I outlined before, except um, in the top end, in places like Arnhem Land, um, Tiwi Island, Groot Island, uh, which are places that are very interesting for my research, but it continues there up until, uh, in some places, until the 1970s. Um, meanwhile, in the rest of Australia, there's the emergence of a new tradition of what I've called um, artistic message sticks, or replicative message sticks, and this, this tradition coincides with the rise of commercial Indigenous art production. So Indigenous carvers begin making message sticks specifically as objects for sale to settlers. Um, and in some cases, they may look similar or even identical to the traditional message sticks, but they're not 
invested with any communicative meaning. And this is a practice that continues in various forms today. Uh, and in, in fact, a large number of the message sticks in museums um, come from this tradition. But meanwhile, back in the top end, um, where the traditional practice was continuing, we get the emergence of yet another practice, which is about using message sticks in very high-profile political negotiations with non-Indigenous institutions. For example, and the earliest example I have of this is a group in the Tiwi Islands sent a message stick to Prime Minister Robert Menzies in 1951, um, and Indigenous leaders from Arakan and Mornington Island sent a joint message stick to Prime Minister Gough Whitlam in 1974 to, to demand land rights. Bob Hawke got one in 1983. Uh, there was even a message stick tabled in the Senate in 2007. Um, and last year, you might um, you might have heard of a guy called Alvin Dorn, who's a, an Indigenous man from Queensland, and he walked 8,000 kilometres to deliver three message sticks to Scott Morrison, who in fact refused them, which was kind of extraordinary. So this is a practice with kind of high-profile political um, message sticks is still going strong and it's very much a, a continuation of these earlier practices when message sticks could sometimes have a very strong diplomatic function. Um, and late 19th century ethnographies talk about message sticks being like a royal seal that um, authenticates the messenger and his message. And of course one of the purposes traditionally was to solidify alliances. So that's a, I think, very a strong continuation of that from a part of Australia where the tradition that it's very strong up until, um, you know, through the 20th century. Um, what's really different about the contemporary political use of message sticks is that they're almost been, always been passed from an Indigenous representative to a non-Indigenous institution. Um, and unlike the traditional routine, the sender and messenger are usually one and the same person. So you make a message stick and you carry it yourself to the Prime Minister or whoever else. So that's, that's, that's an innovation. That's pretty shocking to hear that the Prime Minister would actually refuse to accept the message. They can't yeah. believe it at all. Um, yeah. I, bring... I was in contact with Awandola yeah. at the time and um, we were coordinating. We were trying to together write something about this, but it was very hard because he he had a smartphone. He had been, he was on the road for so long. And um, when he started out his journey, um, it was before the election, so they didn't battle with anyone. And he arrived just in time for the result. And um, so I wonder if it had been Bill Shorten had won the election, it might have been a different case, but it was a real missed opportunity, I think. Yeah, indeed. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And that kind of brings us to um, this question of why do we actually know so little about message sticks, I suppose. Um, I have to tell you the first I heard about message sticks was like um, two years ago when I saw a tweet of yours about message sticks on Twitter. And um, I, I believe this wasn't the first time I actually saw message sticks because I've seen to the um, Aboriginal collections of a number of the museums that house quite a few message sticks. I've seen to the Australia, South Australian Museum in Adelaide. Um, I've seen to the National Museum of Australia. I've seen to um, the Volkerkunde Museum in Leipzig and in Berlin. So I feel like I must have seen message sticks in museums before I actually before your tweet drew my attention to them. And that to me in a sense um, you know, exemplifies that there is something going on with our lack of attention to them. Can you maybe explain them why we know so little and also talk a bit about the lenses that have shaped our knowledge about message sticks? Well, it's interesting that, you know, all those museums are, are important collections, but even so, uh, you're unlikely to have seen them on display. So they would have been in, in Leipzig. Um, they've got quite a number of message sticks, but they're all in storage. Um, there's a few of them are on display in the local uh, library, in Leipzig, three of them. Um, but uh, National Museum, I've not seen them on display. South Australian Museum, maybe or maybe not. I'm not sure. So it's one of those curious things about museums is what you see is only a tiny uh, fraction of what there is. Um, and some of these things will never get seen unless someone asks to see them. They just sit there forever. Um, but yes, I don't really know why there's so little written about message sticks. I was worried when I started out on this research area that maybe maybe they're not that interesting in the end. Maybe that's why. Um, and that's certainly not true, it turns out. And it could have something to do with the fact that um, I think they don't enter into the historical record, uh, into the kind of public historical record, until the 1870s. And on the whole, settlers just didn't notice that this was going on, that Indigenous people um, were communicating in this way. And by the time they clocked onto it in, in the 1880s and the 1890s, massive sick communication was already entering into sharp decline across most of Australia. Um, the colonies had expanded almost everywhere. There were, of course, restrictions placed on the movements and activities of Indigenous people. Um, and nonetheless, there was a strong wave of interest in message sticks from the 1880s uh, through to the early 1900s. And this, this kind of 30-year period uh, is when most of the message sticks in museums today entered the collections. 
Um, but it's also a period that coincides with the, the high watermark of um, social evolutionist theory in Europe and America and Australia, this idea that all human societies could be ranked on a continuum from, you know, quote-unquote savagery through to, quote-unquote, civilization. And the aim of archaeological practice and anthropology was to go and look for those diagnostic markers that told you where a given society was on an evolutionary scale. And the most important criterion in this model uh, for attaining civilization was that you have writing. And that was the crowning technology because it allowed uh, records to be made and you know, writing literally brought a society into history, essentially. Um, and indigenous people around the world were considered to be ahistorical or prehistorical because they didn't have writing. They were, they were timeless, or they were seen as kind of representative of earlier phases of European prehistory. Um, and it's important to recognize that social evolutionism, these ideas were not fringe theories at the time. They were paradigmatic, and even critics of the theory, people like the brilliant um, um, black Haitian um, anthropologist Avalon Sermon, who critiqued the model, they still accept, he still accepted the premises. He took the premises for granted, many of them. So it was very much hegemonic. And Aboriginal people in um, Australia, in this, in this framework, were placed on the lowest rung in that evolutionary scale on the basis of things like an absence of pottery, an absence of metallurgy, and of course, writing. Um, but then a, a German anthropologist that you may have heard of by the name of Adolf Bastian, uh, he got wind of method sticks in, in Cooktown when he was there in the 1880s. And it was just as he was about to catch a boat home. And he talks about being so excited um, that he was debating whether he should miss his steamer in order to kind of find out more about method sticks. He uh, he didn't miss his boat, um, but he in the in the few moments that he had, the few hours he had, he found an Aboriginal trooper who uh, volunteered to make a method stick for him and to explain how it worked. And Bastian started thinking, "Hang on, this looks pretty much like writing." Um, and if that's the case, we really need to rethink what we understand, uh, what we've defined civilization to be. And this preceded a lot of discussion in various scholarly forums about about method sticks, um, what they were. Um, the anthropologist, the well-known anthropologist A.W. Howitt, uh, sent a, a questionnaire to settlers all over the country and asked, well, what do you know about method sticks? And then he um, compiled and summarized the responses, and it led to a debate among settler scholars in a few journals about whether method sticks represented writing. Well, it was framed as a debate, but really the hypothesis that method sticks represented some kind of language, specific language, was always set up as a straw man. You know, well, there are some people out there who maintain the view that method sticks are writing, but this is ludicrous because X, Y, and Z. And the consensus position was really that method sticks were largely meaningless, that all the real information was carried in the verbal exchange. Um, and the method stick was really only a kind of token of authentication, or it was a prompt to help the messenger remember the message. At the same time, though, the very same people, people like A.W. Howard and later Walter Ross, admitted that the signs on method sticks potentially had conventionalized um, semantic values. And they even went so far as to kind of 
uh, identify them and, and gloss these, these meanings from individual objects. So there was a kind of contradiction at the heart of what Settler's Colors were doing, and I think it comes down to the fact that they were approaching Method 6 from a very Eurocentric perspective that kind of admitted that the only significant or real graphic code out there was writing, something that modelled the sounds of language. If you did anything else with visual signs, it was just a kind of noise or decoration. And I think this was a, a missed opportunity because after having, you know, quote-unquote, solved the question of what method six were, then the research energy really waned. And um, tragically, uh, collectors decided at this point that there was no need to make any effort to consult message stick makers um, to understand what the objects were intended to mean. And so collecting institutions are filled with message sticks that have ultra-detailed physical descriptions. You know, it's 16.5 centimetres long, it's made out of this kind of pieces of timber, here's the Latin name, and it has fine cross-hatching along its transverse dimension, but actually nothing about who made it and what its intended meaning was, sometimes not even where it's from, or you get a label like Western Australia, which is felt very helpful. Um, and this is why I think the very best descriptions of message sticks were made before the prejudice took hold. So settlers and ethnographers like Bastian were open-minded about the possibility, so they recorded much more detail, assuming everything to be to be relevant. But after deciding that human message sticks were not that interesting because they weren't writing, we get these very extraordinary events cropping up in, in the archives and newspapers and so on. Um, accounts of message sticks that are successfully interpreted without a messenger. So there's no verbal messenger, the verbal message that's going alongside them. There are cases of messengers who died on their mission, but the message is the message stick is recovered and then read. Um, a bishop uh, in the Northern Territory even conducted a kind of experiment where he was asked to deliver a message stick with a verbal message from I think Darwin to Daily Waters, and he he decided just as an experiment to withhold the verbal message and just hand over the stick to the recipient. And the recipient of the message stick took it and he accurately read it, um, and he correctly read it as a request for headbands and boomerangs, um, and correctly identified the sender too. Um, and indigenous people also started sending them through the post, for example. Um, there was one that I loved that was sent um, by an indigenous soldier serving in World War II, which got intercepted by the military censor, and it was um, it was released without censorship as well, which I think is glorious. Of course, no one else would have been able to read it in the censorship office, I assume, uh, let alone not the, not the enemy, whoever that was. Um, so it's clear that these message sticks were doing something uh, communicative. They're not just uh, redundant tokens or prompts for memory. And so I think the, the short answer to your question of why we know so little about them is, you know, very early on, the communication was uh, mischaracterized, which which derailed research. And this is why we have, unfortunately, ended up with so little, I think, in the way of substantial knowledge. Yeah, it's so, so sad and, and, and such a loss. And do we actually have a chance of ever finding out more about message sticks and their use in pre-colonial times, or do we just need to go and think, oh, well, I mean, un unfortunately, these 
that's not that the wrong idea. Not only did they not leave us any information, but they also sent out the practice, and so it's just lost. Um, no, I think there is a chance. Firstly, um, there is um, there's about 150 or so statistics that are really simply well described, where we get some detail about the context. The message in a very rare case is we get the original transcription of the original language of the verbal message. Um, we know where, we know when, you know, um, we even have individual motifs that are glossed um, in, in even rarer cases. Um, so that's good. Um, that's, that's one way um, that, that we can approach the question. There's also, I mean, some of my work up north is where metastics were used quite recently. Um, and so there are people alive today who can still make a message stick, who can interpret a message stick, who can talk about message sticks. Um, they're, they're very few. Um, I could probably count them on one hand. And um, that's that, that I'm, I know of. Um, but this is also this is also an opportunity to get a sense of this traditional use. But as for, um, you know, finding out in pre-colonial, like going back before 1788, that's a challenge. Um, so there are no message sticks really that are recovered from archaeological sites, which is not unusual because um, Australian climates and soils are not kind to things that are made of wood. Um, there are very few wooden objects that turn up in Australian archaeology and even fewer that predate colonisation. There's possibly one from a cave in Arnhem Land, but it's perhaps not a message stick. I haven't examined it yet. Um, to turn the clock back before 1788 without recourse to archaeology, um, my clues that I'm hoping to be able to work on are firstly distribution, so figuring out where message sticks are traditionally used and where they are not. So we do have documentation of groups that absolutely uh, and maps can be powerful because they reveal that way, they reveal patterns that weren't otherwise obvious. So that's something I'm trying to work on now. Um, and connected to that process of figuring out the distribution, I'm looking at words for message stick in various Australian languages. And I've only got about 60 or um, so far. Um, but I hope that this information will tell will tell us something about, you know, contact and diffusion and inheritance and other wonderful things that historical linguistics can do uh, on that lexical level. And lastly, it's a bit of a moonshot, but I'm I'm looking into oral history. So I've been interviewing senior knowledge holders in the top end about their memories and stories that have been passed down to them. And this history is sometimes quite recent and sometimes potentially quite ancient. And there are Terrific stories, but unless there's temporal markers in those stories, it's not always easy to establish whether they relate to pre-colonial or post-colonial events. And I have one story, for example, that involves Macassarese interactions. Um, but I really, yeah, I really need to work on this survey. It's a challenge. Wow. Um, you've just mentioned that you know, you're looking at um, different words for message stick in the different Australian languages. And one of the um, hypotheses that you mentioned in your article is actually 
that um, method six may also have been used as a means of communication across linguistic boundaries. As I was wondering whether you could maybe tell us a bit more about um, linguistic diversity and multilingualism in pre-colonial Australia. Yeah, um, I mean, that's interesting too, because I'm just looking at the words. I've been going back to that recently, and there words for message stick, they co-lexify often with words for other things like stick or wood or whatever. Um, but then up in the top end, um, and parts of the Kimberley and some of the Queensland, words for message stick is mark, um, which is, I'm pretty positive, uh, borrowing from Creole. In parts of Australia where Creole isn't really used so much. Um, so I, I don't know, I'm just thinking about this. Why why would you have a borrowed term, especially in places where the tradition is strong and, and it points to this kind of multilingual environment? Uh, and also the fact that these are, these are mobile objects. They are moving across territories where different languages both can. So it presents another challenge, I think. Um, so we do know um, metastics are certainly used across linguistic boundaries to the extent that language boundaries coincided to a greater, greater or less to a degree with political boundaries. So that point where you must not cross unless you have permission. Um, and what interests me is the fact that the original verbal message might have been communicated to the messenger in one language, and then that messenger may have passed on the message to its recipient in another language. Uh, and we have to bear in mind, of course, um, that, you know, as we know, indigenous communities were and still are highly multilingual. So multilingualism is not, and that has been a barrier to communication. On the contrary, languages multiply your capacity for communication, like if you're a bigger repertoire. Um, Having said that, I'm interested in the extent to which message sticks might have been used as an additional semiotic resource alongside language, alongside things like body paint and gesture. Um, excuse me, and one thing that um, 19th century ethnographers universally believed was that message sticks had an authenticating function and a mnemonic function. So it authenticated your role as a messenger, it authenticated the message and it helps you remember what the message was. And I think the authentication is real, but I don't think they really had a mnemonic function because the messages that we have that are all recorded, um, that are documented, are all very short. At most, um, you know, they amount to about six lines of text when you write it out. And traditionally, Aboriginal people could and still can recall, you know, song cycles that went all day long. So it, I think it comes from a literate mentality to assume that we can't remember anything substantial unless it's written down. What I think is more likely is that message sticks are all about mutual reinforcement. So they reinforce and authenticate the oral message, but the oral message also reinforces or authenticates the message stick. So if you're delivering a message into a community with a different language, I can imagine at least that precisely because the message stick rotates are not linked to a specific language, they have the capacity to kind of mutually reinforce a message even across language boundaries. So that's the way I'm thinking about it at the moment. They're keeping in mind that these are multilingual communities, their resources are there to communicate. But I wonder then what is a message stick doing 
when all these other things are available to help to help um, channel the message in a particular way. Um, that brings us really to the to the million dollar question. Uh, question: Are message sticks a form of writing, and um, how are they related to other writing systems? I think that's a really great great question. It's worth revisiting that question because, of course, 130 years ago people were asking it, but we can revisit it. I think from a less Eurocentric or a less literacy centric perspective, um, and. A standard definition of writing is that it is a system of visual signs that, that models some kind of linguistic structure. And usually what it models is phonology. So that's why we talk about writing systems as being phonographic. They're coding for and reproducing salient sounds of language. But a writing system can also sometimes model morphology, excuse me, but in a more limited way. So we can then call that process um, logographic or morphographic. Um, an ampersand, for example, models the English word and, but it will also stand for counterpart words for and in other languages like und in German or er in French, because it's not latching onto a phonetic signal, it's simply standing in for a word. On the whole, message sticks don't do anything like this. Um, the signs on them convey meaning, but they're not phonographic or logographic on the whole. So two people um, interpreting the same message stick um, will not come up with the same form of words. That's how we know that it's not writing. It will not be exactly the same form of words. There are potential logographs on some message sticks. So for example, some message sticks have signatures on them, what amounts of signatures that identify the messenger or even the recipient with some specific emblems. Um, there's an amazing message pick from Victoria, sadly it's lost. We have a sketch of it, it has a rebus on it in the form of a picture of a hand and the word hand in that language spoken um, near Warrnambool is munya, um, which is also the local word for meeting. And this is very much writing according to the strictest definition of it um, because, you know, you're drawing attention to the, the sound of the word by referencing a homophobe. Um, but it's clear from commentary that explanations produced by Aboriginal message stick makers and messengers that this is not a principle that's generally at work in the production of motifs. Um, but if message sticks are not on the whole writing, as we understand the term, then I don't know how to account for these cases where message sticks were interpreted with accuracy without the benefit of a verbal message to gloss it. So there's cases where we don't have a messenger. And this is a, a central puzzle in my research. I do have a few inklings, though. Um, firstly, when it comes to the most kind of traditional or classical message sticks, there's, a, there's only a finite range of things that a message stick can actually be about. Um, most commonly, it will be an invitation to ceremony. That's the number one uh, message. Uh, young men's initiation or a funeral, for example. These are the kind of the top two ceremonies that involve large groups of people that are communicated about with message sticks. This is right across Australia. Then you get message sticks that are for coordinating hunting. Um, you get declarations of war, requests for political alliances. You get requests for items, especially, you know, tradable or luxury items of value. Uh, sometimes you get a kind of a news bulletin and so on. So if you're 
seeing a messenger approach, you've already perhaps have an idea about what the likely message will be on the basis of kind of a probabilities. And then the messenger could be painted up in a particular way to, for example, covered in pipe clay from morning. So that gives you a good guess that it's um, uh, that that it's probably about a funeral. I've seen there's some sticks that have got pipe clay on them with kind of fingerprints of the pipe clay, and so I, it makes me imagine that the, the messenger was um, covered in pipe clay and, and this is rubbed off onto the stick. Um, then the message itself will be from a specific named individual to another specific individual, and when you know who that person is and their relationship to the recipient, this again constrains the possible topics. So when my dad calls me and I see his number pop up on my phone, it's often about fixing his computer. You know, I can pretty much guess that as soon as I see his number, that's probably what the topic is going to be. If my brother calls me, well, that topic of communication is less likely. It could be a number of other things. And in Aboriginal Australia, as we know, kinship and social categories can regulate the kinds of things you can talk about as well as the way you're expected to talk about them. Um, their expectations, in other words, based on the identity of the sender of the recipient and their prior relationship. Um, and in many Aboriginal societies, uh, as we know, the whole universe is divided up along kinship or social category lines. So the kind of timber that's selected for the message might be meaningful in terms of what it's pointing to in the world, or rather who it's pointing to in the world. And at other times, it really means nothing at all. So in some of the fieldwork I did in on and around message stick makers have used, for example, wood from um, paper bark tree. And um, I asked about this and I said, oh no, it's because it's softwood, it's really easy to work. Um, on another occasion, they produced a message stick from salvage timber because um, we couldn't get a four-wheel drive. So they found some salvage timber that was lying around the backyard and probably just an off-cut from construction. So the point is with everything I've said so far, that even before we get to the science, even before we consider the motif, there is already a very pretty well-constrained frame of reference. Um, when it comes to the science themselves, they can be quite basic and abstract. So as I mentioned, not shows of lines and dots and nothing that jumps out at you as being pregnant with you know deep meaning. And they can be quite multivalent too. So a knot is often a person, but it can also be a place. It can be a countable object. It can be an element in a narrative. And a large part of my work is to try to identify signs and meanings and figure out what general class of information is being encoded where. So what's being talked about in the verbal message, uh, what's recorded on the stick, and what's entirely unspoken and implicit in these exchanges. So to sum up, um, I think a message stick can achieve results that are very like writing without actually being writing. And you could make the case that the signs have to some extent semantic values, but not language specific linguistic values. Um, when it comes to looking at how message sticks relate to other systems, I think it's important to position writing or language based writing as just one kind of conventionalized visual code that's out there in the world. There are many others like Andean string keepers that are knotted cords once used in the Inca Empire for quite complex accounting and administration. There are lots of symbol systems in West Africa and indigenous North America for recording information, sometimes calendrical, sometimes ritual related. And I'd like to get a sense of where message sticks fit in that whole spectrum. Um, there are those like Elizabeth Hill Boone 
who uh, was a brilliant scholar, uh, and she makes the case that we need to make a, we need to come up with a bigger and more inclusive definition of writing. I actually don't agree with it. I think that the, the definition of writing being a representation of spoken language is a good one. It's well grounded. It's the connotation that we need to challenge. And thinking in terms of um, decolonization, I. I worry especially about well-intentioned moves to try to award um, prestige to a cultural practice on the basis of its underlying or superficial similarity to a Western or European model. And instead, I think, you know, let's decolonize the typology itself and decenter writing and literacy as being somehow preeminent. And let's accept and, um, and value that there are other ways to communicate with signs uh, with visual phones that are perfectly adequate for their purpose, and these should be defined on their own terms, not just in relation to writing. Um, so that's the kind of, it's, a, it's what I think of as the Bruce Pascoe paradox, you know, you want to compare, but you also want to, you don't want to center the, the colonial metric, if you like. Yeah, I mean, these are all such difficult and important questions to discuss, and we could go on all day because this is so fascinating, but I'm very mindful that I've already taken quite a lot of your time. Uh, before I let you go, if someone now is listening, he's been listening to this, gets really interested and wants to learn more, do you just tell us where can people go and they want to learn more about Message 6? And is there a way for anyone to actually join the research? Yes, yes, to all of that. Yeah, I think like, the best thing to, to wait to start is you can go to the Australian Message Stick database, just Googling it, and um, click around uh, down the bottom of the screen. There's a little map. You can click around. You can find what's in your area uh, from parts of Australia that you're interested in or where you might be from. Uh, and if you live in Australia, most towns will have a local cultural centre or keeping place where you might be lucky enough to see a Message Stick and you can maybe join... Um, uh, locally-led, indigenously-led research on the ground. Um, at the moment, I'm hoping to work with Aboriginal artists from in and around Armadale, New South Wales, to reconstruct traditional techniques for carving message sticks. I'm really looking forward to, to that. Um, so starting locally is always a great idea. Um, and the fact that there hasn't been very much written about message sticks is disappointing, but it's a good thing to the extent that there's very little that you have to read in order to be fully up to date. So I have online, you could find it with Googling it, I think, um, an annotated PDF called A Very Short Reading Guide to Research on Australian Method Sticks, which is just a beginner's guide to get you started. Um, there's plenty of, there's endless topics in this area. Um, so if you're interested in pursuing research topics, I don't hesitate to get directly in touch with me. I can, um, I can point you further into the right direction, especially if you're perhaps doing a master's topic or an honours topic. I'm very happy to help out there. Thanks so much, Pierce. And we'll make sure to actually put up all those links together with this particular podcast and make them available. Thank you very much for your time and well. back with your research. Not at all. Thank you very much.